didn't you leave me to die on the field? You're the laird himself. Uh, the laird of what? All the men of our clan are lying in the mud. Oh, I should be with them. Welcome to Who Worth Watching, where we're exploring this classic series from the beginning to see what's still worth watching for a modern audience. Today, we're talking about the 1966 story, The Highlanders. I'm your host, and I don't want to boast, but people generally consider my German accent to be impeccable. My co-host is Guy, and I want to reassure him that he shouldn't be at all concerned that we're hiring a strapping young additional co-host for this podcast. Uh-oh. Yeah, hello, Guy. Hello, Ron. So, yeah, I mean, one of the, you know, historically, one of the huge reasons that people wish this episode, this story existed is that it introduces Jamie, played by Fraser Hines, who becomes one of the longest-serving uh, companions in the whole series, and unfortunately, you can't see his introduction but you know if you're so we have ben and polly right and polly is the woman to get in the guys and ben is the young strapping you know energetic guy presumably to get in the women and then and they didn't plan on it just at the very end of the story they asked fraser hines if he would come on full time and they actually had to refilm the last scene you know to uh to change it around and and so if you're the guy who's already there, who's the young strapping guy, and then they hire another young strapping guy, let's just say you might want to uh, not buy any green bananas. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see how that goes. It's just a prediction. <laughs> uh, wow. So this is the 31st story. It's, uh, I didn't realize we'd watched 31 of these things. <laughs> uh, um, and it happens, you know, in Scotland and in the aftermath of something called the battle of Culloden. And I was looking all this stuff up on Wikipedia and everything. And the thing is, you know, I'm sure in England or Scotland, obviously you would just be immersed in this stuff and be aware of it. But when you're coming from an outside perspective, it's really hard to follow. Cause it's like this group of people was fighting this group of people that have their whole own background. And, you know, this guy who was the, you know, this guy's wife's uncle's son has some tenuous uh, claim on the British throne. And, you know, it's just like, okay, what it comes down to, like most like Shakespeare ones and everything is one group of people wants to take over control from the other group of people. And <laughs> that's just, you know. Yeah. And uh, it, I especially, I had to look up what the deal was with this Prince Charles they kept talking about. Because, you know, Prince we've Charles. grown up with a Prince Charles who was very <laughs> English. Uh, turns out this guy is also English, but he is from a family who is uh, exiled. They, uh, you know, they think the people actually sitting on the throne now are usurpers or something. You know, so right. they're leading the rebels. Yeah, he yeah, and and uh, he grew up outside of England and believes that you know he should be able to take over, and it's one of those things you know we see this over and over again historically, which is he believed that all these people in England secretly supported him, and once they marched in, they were all gonna throw in their support, right? And basically, that never happens. Right? Uh, you, you go in and there's crickets, and then you know <laughs> then you get smashed by the local. Uh, <laughs> Militaries. 
So that's basically what happened here, right? Is he promised, oh, we're going to go in and all these different people support us. They even made plans. The, the route they were going to England was designed to go through the areas that were going to have the most support for them, right? And, and you know, it just none of that happened. <laughs> so uh, so it, it's not too important to this. I mean, basically this story occurs kind of as that is going on, as it's all falling apart and, and the, the Scottish folks are, are getting pummeled. And I keep saying this, but I guess this time it's finally true. Like, you know, as I said, the historicals, the true historicals, which didn't have sort of weird aliens or anything in them, uh, were not as popular and they gave up on them. And I keep thinking, oh, this is the last one. Well, apparently this is the last one and for decades, uh. right, for like 20 years before they have another complete historical. Of course, they always go back in history, but they have, you know, science fictional elements to it. Someone like the the um, uh, the monk, right, the meddling monk who... Oh, who had his own TARDIS. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that's a classic, you know, true Doctor Who story where it's bringing its own thing in and not just yeah sort of historical and i and i remembered it so uh <laughs> that's uh <laughs> there must well, be something good one of the, i mean not so much in this or even the smugglers but one of the problems sometimes with historicals is that there's a lot of well there's here's how i put it there's a lot of sitting around in pubs is that one french story uh or mm-hmm. There's a bunch of action, but there's not a whole lot of story, right? So the smugglers, I mean, this has a little bit more story, but again, there's a whole lot of action. We will probably cover less of it just because it's, you know, the other thing I'll say, I mean, up front in terms of the reconstruction, um, if you are interested in this story, I highly, highly recommend that you listen to the audiobook. You know, BBC put out several uh, missing stories, audiobooks. They're really good. The narrator, I think in this case, the narrator is Fraser Hines, who plays Jamie, you know, puts in all the stuff you're missing, you know, narrates it, et cetera. And honestly, trying to watch the, uh, the visual reconstructions that I was able to find, I was, it was, the visuals were actually distracting because they were reusing the same shots over and over and it didn't necessarily reflect what was going on. And I actually could not tell what was going on. I just I just stopped watching it and just listened to the audio book and read the Chakatoya script. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's uh, that, that, that's what I, uh, I, I mean, I didn't stop watching it. I actually did sit through. I, the last two I played at 1.5 speed, <laughs> so uh, we got through them a little faster. But but then uh, then I went to the uh, Chakatoya site, uh, Chrissy's Transcript, it's also called, for... Uh, uh, for the actual actual dialogue, because part of it is the sound's kind of fuzzy in this. So in, in addition to you've got some fuzzy, and then the, the subtitles on the reconstruction in the first one, they're halfway cut off because someone decided they wanted to take a standard definition reconstruction <laughs> and zoom in on it to make it widescreen. Uh, and then the second one, everything was flipped in reverse, mm. which, uh, uh, when the stuff, when the subtitles are going across marquee style is, uh, sort of, <laughs> sort of a difficult thing to keep track with, even though I can read in reverse pretty good. But, uh, anyway, it's, uh, yeah, it was not ideal. Uh, I mean, certainly the person who did it did their best with what that was available, I'm sure, but uh, but it really just wasn't. Uh, I mean, if you were going to say worth watching just on the reconstructions alone, I'd say uh, 
Boy, unless you're really, really into Doctor Who, you don't want to <laughs> well, do that. And I think that's hopefully the service we're providing is we're at least going to tell you the story and you don't have to suffer through all that. And if you just want to have a sense of how this, you know, companion came about and what the story was, then we'll we'll cover it for you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, let's get into episode one. So the Doctor and Ben and Polly land in Scotland in 1746, you know, right after this battle. And the Scots have been stomped at this point, and they're retreating. And we follow a small group of them. And they have a leader, Colin, who's been seriously wounded. And he's accompanied by his son, Alexander, his daughter, Kirsty, and a piper named Jamie McCrimmon. And this is Fraser Hines. <laughs> Alexander doesn't last long because he sacrifices himself uh, trying to help them get away by killing a red coat and running away. <laughs> yeah, well, he charges into a whole group of them. Which, yeah, uh, and it doesn't do any good. So it's all. like, great, you committed suicide. You know, they call it what they have suicide by cop, right? So it was like suicide by <laughs> red, red yeah. coat, but it didn't actually help anybody. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Jamie McCurman is a piper, and they make a big deal out of him being the piper. And so, you know, I asked ChatGPT about this. And it turns out being a piper was a really big deal. You know, it was both, uh, as you'd think of with like a drummer, it was both a way of um, giving morale to troops while they're going into battle. But also it was a communication mechanism because you could hear, so, there, so piper meaning bagpipes, you could hear the bagpipes over the sound of the battle. So they could send signals out about what you're supposed to do by what they played. Um and, and so they yeah, played, if you were if you were piping on the doctor's recorder it wouldn't carry nearly as far <laughs> yeah exactly and so this actually was so effective the bagpipes were so effective in battle that the english outlawed playing them <laughs> so oh. it became illegal which may explain why bagpiping has survived so well down into the current day because it uh you know by by them being outlawed, that would just create a nostalgia for them. Yeah, and, and it's such a part of the culture and them trying to overcome the English. And yeah, I think that all makes sense. So as these people are fleeing, uh, the British, the TARDIS materializes. <laughs> this is kind of funny because you know they get out of the TARDIS and it's cold and damp. So Ben immediately decides they're in England, which is a little bit, you know. <laughs> I mean, it, it's kind of logical. But also every time they get out of the TARDIS, Ben thinks they're in England. Uh, I think that was the case in the smugglers and... Then a cannonball flies by, and they all hit the dirt. Meanwhile, the the Scottish group we were following has taken shelter in a, in a little ruined cottage, and they have an argument over whether the leader, you know, the prince, as we said, Bonnie Prince Charles, um, who you know put all this together, was a coward. He's the he's the rebel prince. Yeah, just, uh, I mean, we said that before, but it's worth. <laughs> Worth bringing up because this whole four-episode arc deals with this battle between the rebels and the, you know, the English. Right. Anyway. And so yeah. they debate whether he was a coward who fled the battlefield as soon as the battle started. And I I looked things up, by which I mean I talked with ChatGPT about this. <laughs> because it's... Yeah, you got to be careful of that. Yeah. <laughs> so... Because it's common propaganda, right, that peop that one side spreads stories about the other uh, leadership and stuff, right, to try and, and delegitimize them. And in addition to saying that he he might have fled the battlefield, there's a there's a rumor that comes up later on that he is pretending to be a woman 
uh, to escape the field, right? And that would be also kind mm-hmm. of, you know, an embarrassing way to be getting out, right? So I asked yeah. about these things, and uh, it's not known what he did on the battlefield, but he did flee at least after the fact, of course, because they were going to kill him. And he didn't attempt to pretend to be a woman on the battlefield, but he did pretend to be a maid when they were looking for him. So <laughs> ah. Dressed him up as a maid and, and uh, et cetera. So there is some truth to, to this rumor. <laughs> But of course, we know that that was actually inaccurate. It was actually the doctor yeah, who dressed we'll, up we'll, as a maid. <laughs> we'll get to that. And they also believe that the English are butchering the wounded and hanging their prisoners. And, and I assume this probably was true, at least in part. But again, that's the kind of thing that every side believes about the other side in every battle. So it's a little hard. Yeah. To, hard to know. And some English soldiers approach the cottage. And at the same time, the TARDIS crew is approaching the cottage and they find a cannon. This is a little weird digression here. I'm not sure why they do it. Uh, they find a cannon and, and Ben says, oh, this must be what fired the cannonball at us. And the doctor says it can't be because it's been spiked, which literally means that a spike has been driven into it to keep it from being able to fire. And then they go on and that never comes up again. I was just like, I wonder why they did that. Like, It didn't, didn't make a lot of sense to me. Yeah, considering the first thing that happened when they got out of the TARDIS was, uh, you know, almost get blown up by a cannonball, you know, or or hit by a cannonball. They don't, it wasn't an exploding one, I guess, but uh, yeah, you'd think they'd want to stay well clear of cannons. (laughs) Well, but even what purpose this had in the story, right? Because it's not like they come back to it. It's not like things being spiked becomes the way they solve a problem later. It's just, oh, here's a cannon that didn't shoot at us because it spiked. Well, I guess we'll go on now. Okay. <laughs> it's not, also, it could have been a story element that there was a cannon out there that was live and being used. You know, any, there could be anything that could be relevant, but it just wasn't. <laughs> they spent a couple minutes yeah. on this. <laughs> yeah, we could, we could theorize, like, you know, maybe it was put in for historical tidbits for the kids right. or something. Yeah. And then the doctor finds a funky hat on the ground that he likes, uh, but Polly points out that it has this pro, you know, Bonnie Prince Charles propaganda on it and that disgusts him and he throws it down which is a mistake because the Scottish group surrounds him now and he's just insulted them by throwing down the hat with you know their leader's uh, thing on it and I don't think he was offended by the idea of Prince Charles he was offended I think he said it was something like sentimental rubbish or something to that effect let me call it piffle or something Yeah, a good British term so he's offended the Scots and they have like, you know, uh, swords at their necks and stuff. And they insist he pick the hat back up and the Scots decide based on their accents that they are English who've, you know, they're not soldiers clearly, but they've come to steal from the dead. So they're going to execute them. There's a lot of, you know, going to execute them, especially in the first episode of the story. <laughs> then they find out the doctor is a doctor. So they decide to let him live until he takes care of uh, their leader and in the whole sequence here, at some point, Ben grabs a gun and they manage to disarm the Scots. And then, <laughs> this is, uh, he throws the gun onto the table and it goes off. Well, and in, now this is probably more possible at the time. This is actually one of the myths now, right? People always who end up shooting someone like, um, uh, Alec Baldwin, 
you know, in his case saying, oh, the gun just went off and I didn't. It's like, especially modern guns, a gun does not go off, right? I mean, you, you must uh, pull the trigger. There's been a huge amount of design in these things, so they don't just go off. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. uh, but it's probably a little more believable here. The problem is that the gun going off alerts the English that somebody is in this cottage. And this is when Alexander runs out and does his suicide run. And the British take everyone in the cottage prisoner. But they can't win for losing because, you know, the Scottish were going to execute the crew for being English. The British assume that, yes, you're English, but you must be traitors since you're here. So no matter which side gets them, they're going to execute them. And now the doctor impersonates a German doctor, Dr. Von Ware. <laughs> so Von Ware is close to Dr. Who in German, although it's actually more like uh, Dr. From Who or Dr. Of Who. But, you know. Right. And we get a couple of Dr. Who jokes in this story. So, Yeah. So uh, that, that does confirm further my, my contention <laughs> that Dr. Who is the doctor's actual name. Yeah, uh, He's not just the doctor. <laughs> doesn't matter how much evidence there is. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> So now this I do like uh, nearby all this, there's this English lawyer, you know, or they call solicitor named Gray. And he's a fun character throughout because he and his assistant Perkins, they're watching over the battle. They're like eating lunch, right? And this is actually true historically, right? Families and other things would come out and watch battles and eat lunch and, you know, bring like a basket lunch with them because they actually saw it as sort of entertainment, you know? (laughs) I've heard of that happening during the American Civil War, too. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was thinking of. And uh, especially if you think, oh, you know, my side's going to win and I don't have to worry. Then it's, you know, yeah, it's just a TV show you're watching, you know, live. Yeah. And uh, so, but Gray is disappointed at how unexciting the battle is. And he's also disappointed that he's watching the the wounded get killed by the English. Now, he's part of the English, but for him... The wounded are potential unexploited labor, <laughs> and they shouldn't be being killed. He could make a profit off of them. And I agree. I think that, you know, yes, <laughs> in the sense that people are valuable and have something to provide, and uh, you shouldn't go around killing them, you know, if you don't need to. But, you know, he's supposed to be kind of a negative character in this because he's a war profiteer, right? And that's his whole own thing uh, where I, I think, who knows, it depends on the case, but I, I think profiteering is usually a good thing, including in war. And usually if there are things you have that people want to pay for, then you're providing a value to them to get it to them. Right. Well, in this case, he's, he's selling people into slavery. Yeah. He's, I, he's not providing a lot of value. To, uh, not generally approve of that. Yeah. It's a, I mean, I was thinking of like in the, uh, the Dalek invasion of earth, right. They were mad at the guy who was providing food to people for a fee. Oh, the the guy who smuggled food around. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of thing where I'm like, well, people need food (laughs) and he needs to be paid. So I don't see that as so much of a problem, right? Um, But yeah, he's he's providing a a value added service. You know, he goes out and gets the food and you pay him for his trouble. Yeah. And he's taking the risk of getting (laughs) shot and all the rest of it. So I agree that, well, I think what I what I agree with Gray on is I'd rather these people lived instead of getting killed, right? And, of course, his reason is because he wants to make money off of them by selling them into slavery. <laughs> but uh, uh, you have to decide where where you are on that one. <laughs> yeah. Is it better to be dead or a slave? Um, 
So meanwhile, Polly and Kirsty, the daughter, were off getting water, and so they didn't get captured by the English. And they have their whole own story through the whole thing. Uh, and Polly takes charge here and throws some rocks at the soldiers to distract them. And the English see the women, and, and all women in this story are wenches, right? So I'm not sure how insulting that was at the time. I don't think – I think it was at least somewhat insulting, right? Because it certainly meant you were like a lower class uh, woman. I don't think they would call a high class mm. woman a wench, but um, yeah. And the thing is, here's where we find out they've been instructed. I mean, they normally they might not care that women were throwing rocks at them. They don't consider them combatants, and you know they might ignore them. But they've been instructed to stop women because it's believed that Bonnie Prince Charlie is trying to escape as a woman, so they have a reason to to go after them. Meanwhile, Ben and the Doctor are about to be hung, and then. By the British soldiers. Hanged. Is it hanged? Hung? Actually, yeah, it's a little known thing with a, with an actual hanging. It's uh, it's hanged. Yeah, I kind of thought. This, uh, there's that uh, there's that joke in Blazing Saddles where uh, Sheriff Bart uh, comes back from from the governor's office where he was to be hanged, and one of his uh, fellow railroad workers. <laughs> They said you was hung. And Bart says they was right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I kind of knew it was wrong when I wrote it. But uh, <laughs> So they're about to be hanged when Gray shows up and claims he has charge over all rebel prisoners, which may be true. It's never quite clear if he has really an official position. I think he kind of does, but he's taking advantage of it. Like, like he's in charge of rebel prisoners, but he's not supposed to be selling them into slavery. I think that's the, the deal. And he bribes the soldiers in this case to get them to uh, not kill them. So Ben and the doctor are saved. <laughs> Although, actually, he's not interested in the doctor. And, in fact, he's, he says, you can kill this strange-looking scoundrel. I don't need him. <laughs> so, uh, but then, you know, when we were talking about fictitious legal arguments. The doctor brings up a fictitious legal argument. He says, you're a lawyer, right? And he says, Article 17, Aliens Act, 1730. You know, you can't execute a foreigner without mon notifying the ambassador first. So he just started talking like a German or whatever to say he's a, a foreigner. And I, I, my joke at the beginning is that uh, he has a lot of fun in, in a number of stories, like playing different characters and playing women, as we'll see here and all this. But I, I'm not so sure the German accent is, uh, is too good. Maybe he wasn't <laughs> supposed to be because it's kind of a joke. But Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know how many... Germans they would have gotten in Scotland, but although there could have been, because you know they'd go out as mercenaries and stuff. So right. I don't know. People travel the world, but you know he could have pulled it off probably. So, and if not, well, the plus the TARDIS is doing translations anyway, so maybe <laughs> or, or we assume that's what's doing translations. They've never really they right. There's some future time when they that. say that, yeah. Now, I did ask uh, ChatGPT if Article 17, Aliens Act 1730 was real, and it said no. So, like like the sovereign citizens, he's making up law to get out of things. Uh, but great. Although you did uh, look it up on ChatGPT, yeah. which uh, wasn't – weren't you just telling me? <laughs> yeah, maybe the even in the last podcast about the lawyer who – Well, that was uh, GPT 3.5. The... I'm using 4.0, so uh, oh, I'm, I'm getting okay. the good Never stuff. mind. Uh, <laughs> proceed. Yeah. Carry on. Uh, <laughs> So, and Gray, at first, being a lawyer, has to pretend he knows what this law is. But then he finds out that the doctor is actually a doctor, and he decides he can make use of him after all, so they won't kill him. It's always convenient as main characters when you get out of these things. <laughs> so, so. 
meanwhile, Polly and Kirsty have their own story. They're hiding in a cave that Kirsty's family uses as a hideout after they like uh, raid cattle or something. So it sounds like they're not a. I don't know. She didn't say that it was from the English, so I didn't know if they're like kind of a criminal family in general, or maybe they would would just you know take cattle from the English. Uh, I don't remember what she said, but uh, but it was something to the effect that we only take them from bad people. Or yeah, that's right. We, we only like steal that. from people because they steal from us. Yeah, that's a Robin Hood thing. Yeah. Um, now, I have another digression here because – so Kirsty, who is the local living with all this, whose life's being impacted, she just wants to give up on everything and, you know, oh, well, nothing we can do. And Polly is the outsider, is the one who has energy and wants to make a plan and save her friends and shake this person out of it. And it just, it mm-hmm. reminded me, we've actually mentioned this at least once before in a podcast we did with Andrew Heaton. Um, it's the classic, the outsider comes in and shows people how they should act thing. And uh, the the movie I really hated that did this was Mississippi Burning, right? Which was about, mm. it was a Gene Hackman film where he's an FBI agent and another guy is an FBI agent. And the black people in the South are are refusing to do anything about their situation and getting killed and all the rest of this until the FBI comes in and shows them how to act. And it's like, it's uh, not how it happened. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't I haven't seen Footloose, but I understand that it were, there was a similar thing going on there uh, with Kevin Bacon. But, uh, and also, uh, there was a movie called Pleasantville that, uh, did the same thing where, you know, people show up and all of a sudden everybody in town is thinking, oh boy, these people really, uh, have their act together. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) But Pleasantville, I, uh, I actually detested them. Footloose, I never saw. So I, I saw it when I was a kid, so I couldn't say no. I just, I think, uh, the main thing I remember about that is that I think that's what really got Kevin Bacon, uh, to be known. Um, and so he's had it ever since then. Uh, I, I remember enjoying it at the time, but I'd have to go back and watch it again. Uh, it's actually not on our list. I'm not sure I would, you know, I'm not sure it fits on our list. So it's not, <laughs> I'll, I'll take the unusual have, course of not saying we should have to see it. And although it sounds like you might want to. So. <laughs> uh, no, I've never really had a hankering. Although it is, if I remember right, I think it's an 80s movie. So I might enjoy it just on that basis. <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, no, no big burning desire to see it. So Polly leaves, uh, kind of leaves Kirsty behind uh, at night, and she walks out of the cave, and she falls into an animal trap. And then a hand with a dagger appears above her, and it's the dun, end of the dun, episode. Dun. And by the way, that's a, that's a pretty uh, tense thing there. We're going to have to see how they resolve that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And and if you have to, well, I, I, I don't know how far you got in the actual watching reconstructions, but I... I watched this first as the reconstruction, and uh, you know it was hard to even make out that it was a hand yeah, with had, a dagger. Plus, it was a still frame, and you know it just right. took away a lot of the uh, cliffhanger suspense. This is as far as I watched, and I had no idea what was going on. <laughs> I didn't know there was a dagger. <laughs> I, I mean, I just, it was just she. You know, she screams, and it's the end of the episode. Okay, <laughs> so that's that's where it was helpful to listen to the audio book and they actually tell you what's going on. So Kirsty and uh, Polly are in an animal trap, which is just a pit. Fortunately, they 
didn't put any you know poison spikes in the bottom of the pit or anything like that. It's just a pit. Um, they uh, she well actually she, okay we didn't resolve well, well, the um oh the yeah cliffhanger the hanger and all that oh stuff. yeah okay so <laughs> uh, let me just don't just leave wipe that hanging there. <laughs> yeah just wipe that and I'll start with the dagger. <laughs> So episode two starts off with that dagger cliffhanger, and uh, it turns it turns out the dagger is just held by Kirsty. She's come out looking for Polly. Yeah, and this and, is uh, a classic example of the one of where they really whiff the cliffhanger, right? Because they always got to find some way out. There's a really famous one way in our future, which hopefully we'll get to, exist. but um, where uh, one of those popular companions ever is falling from a great height in this building. And it was, it was for kids at the time. They're like, Oh my God, how's she going to get out of it? Right. Cause she's climbed all the way up to this thing and she's falling. She's clearly going to die. <laughs> and then the next week they show that, Oh, two feet under her, there just happened to be a ledge. <laughs> she fell. Uh, 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 <laughs> so this is like that, right? This is that level of, okay, you really didn't even try. <laughs> it's like, Oh, the knife was <laughs> held by her friend. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, not not a great cliffhanger, but as I was watching the reconstruction, it was all going over my head anyway. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Kirsty has has found Polly. Uh, she's going to try to pull Polly out. Of course, she she had the dagger out because she's well in the dark woods at night. Plus, uh, she didn't know who was in the pit making noises and so forth. Anyway, uh, she tries to pull Polly out, but instead she falls in with her. You know, it's semi-predictable, but uh, <laughs> not too bad. Uh, and while they're down there, they hear British soldiers approaching. And the soldiers are led by Officer Finch with two Fs for Finch. And, I, think uh, he, I didn't call him out by name. He was actually part of the first story. So he's through the whole thing, right? It's kind of one of the key officers in this whole story. Yeah. Yeah, he'll uh, he'll play a role at various points to come here. He sends his men to retrieve his horse, so he's all alone out in the dark woods. Kirsty's down in the pit. She starts crying. She, uh, Officer Finch doesn't hear her. Uh, and Polly scolds Kirsty for crying, because this is the second time she's been crying since Polly's known her, and uh, that's, just, uh, that's just a little too frail for Polly's taste. So uh, they have a little bit of a argument about that. Not an argument, just a, just a scolding. But anyway, Finch hears animal sounds coming from the pit because the girls are making animal sounds <laughs> to uh, draw him in. And sure enough, when he checks it out, he falls in the pit. Then Kirsty holds a gun on him, and they tie him up, and they find food on him. Then we switch to the Inverness jail. The doctor's in there with a bunch of the other men who are taken prisoner. And the Jamie is in there with him. And the doctor yells, down with King George, very loudly. And Jamie questions him about it, because up to this point, the doctor has uh, been claiming he's not sympathetic with King George. But the doctor says he just likes the echo. <laughs> the Scots are suspicious uh, because the doctor isn't letting the laird's blood. You know, he's a doctor, and he's not letting blood. This is uh, something uh, is obviously hinking here. But uh, but it's it's no big deal to the doctor because he uh, he begins doing some astrological analysis. He asks <laughs> them what the Laird's birthday is. 
And he can he concludes that the uh, the planets aren't auspicious for bloodletting. Uh, of course, the real reason is that the Laird is dying due to blood loss. So the doctor stopped the <laughs> bleeding, and now they're right. trying to fire it back up. I won't bother getting the clips. We've done it in some long past episode of the you know the um, Saturday Night Live bloodletting with Steve Martin. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah the. Uh, uh, the medieval barber. Yeah. yeah I can't, it's something like Theophilus or Theodoric. Theodoric. Theodoric of York. Yeah. The medieval barber. <laughs> All right. Anyway, uh, Jamie, it turns out, he's carrying Prince Charles's personal standard, which is to say the standard of the leader of the rebels. And he's, he's uh, protecting it for the prince. It's a big PR win if the enemy captures the leader's standard right um, right it's, it's right. all it, it's nothing strategic it's purely yeah just just embarrassing right yeah and i should say the standard is is just a flag right. same thing I mean, it would be kind of like saying oh we got his underwear or something it's like oh we were able to get in and <laughs> you know take this thing right I mean, that's, yeah 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 it's just a little uh, little status symbol <laughs> So um, the doctor takes the standard and he hides it under his coat. And, and a lot of this stuff is undecipherable from the actual reconstruction that we watched. So I'm, uh, I'm, I'm trusting in the script here uh, for, for guidance. There are a lot of margin note type things in there. And it does certainly make the story more plausible, some of these notes. So I'm, I'm going to guess that the script is is pretty close to accurate. He takes it and hides it by wrapping it around his body. He's saying that Jamie will be killed for sure if the English find it on him. Uh, and then he whips out his recorder <laughs> and he starts playing a rebel tune on it. And that brings the guards, uh, both because it's a rebel tune and because it's a recorder, which uh, no guard wants to sit through that. <laughs> and uh, the doctor tells them of a plot to murder the Duke of Cumberland, mm -hmm. and he has to be taken to Solicitor Gray. After the doctor leaves with the guard, uh, Ben explains to Jamie that, that the, the doctor is just, uh, he's employing a ruse. The doctor has a better chance of rescuing the others if he's free, mm -hmm. if he's not imprisoned with the rest of them, which is sensible. Back at the animal trap, the girls are down there with this officer, Finch, and they've taken 20 guineas from him, and that's a small fortune. They also take a piece of his hair as proof that two girls captured Finch, which is a scandalous thing for an officer to go through. Right, and this is another thing where Polly is kind of taking the lead, and she's she's already creating this whole plan because rather than kill him, which is what Kirsty would want to do, because, of course, this is, you know, one of the officers in the of the British who've been harassing them and killing them and everything. Uh, Polly's like, no, if we embarrass him and let him go, and if we have the proof that we captured him, this gets back to that standard thing, we're going to be able to use him in the future. So she's very, she's thinking like 20 steps ahead here. Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, they're engaging in a little blackmail now. And uh, <laughs> it, it seems from from a 21st century American viewpoint, uh, it, it seems like it might not be a very effective form of blackmail nowadays. Hell, if anything, it would be bragging rights. You know, ah, two girls caught me and tied <laughs> me up. <laughs> but, uh, but I digress. 
we cut to an end in Inverness, and uh, we meet Sea Captain Trask, and the way he talks is very <laughs> piratey like. <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of like from the Smugglers. It's sort of out of place here. I mean, it's a little weird to me, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's he's your uh, he's your standard Hollywood pirate type. But he's a sea captain uh, of of slave ships, but still a sea captain, and uh, and he meets with Solicitor Gray. Gray tells him the prisoners are to be loaded tonight. Trask has an interesting line here that um, I, I'm surprised the BBC would have put it in even in the 1960s because they were, uh, I mean, even back then I think they leaned a little bit to the. Uh, to the progressive side, uh, Trask says, a Highlander will do twice the work of one of your black slaves. <laughs> so, uh, and uh, Gray admonishes him for that, but not because it's any kind of deprecation of the black slaves, but just, uh, well, I don't remember why, but it wasn't for that. It was just basically saying, shut up. I think part of the deal here is the script is trying to be nice to the Highlanders and the Scottish. And here I'm just guessing it'd be nice to have Toby or someone here to tell us because my assumption is, you know, I think the British and the Scots had a lot of problems with each other. And this story was probably trying to be progressive by treating the Scots as honorable people. And we see a bit later, Gray will say, oh, you know, if we insult them or beat one of them, the rest of the Highlanders are all joined together, you know, and and refuse to cooperate with us. So they, you know, they have this honor so I think I think the script is trying in this case to be progressive, and they're just throwing black people over the board in the process. Oh, right? uh, yeah. Well, that makes sense. Reasonable hypothesis. Anyway, I just thought it was a memorable <laughs> quote. So I threw it in there. And then the guard arrives bringing Dr. Vare. <laughs> and uh, Solicitor Gray takes a pistol from his desk and rests it on the table during his discussion with the doctor because he doesn't trust him very much. Dr. Vare confesses there is no plot against uh, the Duke or whoever the hell it was there was supposed to be a plot against, uh, except Dr. Vare has a plot uh, to make 15,000 pounds a piece, 15 for him, 15 for Gray, because there's a 30,000 pound reward for capturing Prince Charles. <laughs> At this point, Vare pulls out the standard, the flag that he's wrapped around himself. He says he's taken it from a prisoner who surely would know where to find him because he's obviously a confidant of the prince himself. Uh, but then the doctor throws the flag over Gray's head and he grabs the gun off the table. And uh, again, with these, uh, you know, still frames that <laughs> last for 10 or 15 seconds at a stretch, uh, that was not at all evident to me from the, uh, the reconstruction that we watched. One thing I'll say in this story, more so than the one so far with Patrick Trouton, is... Um, he he does impact the story and he does do clever things like, you know, at every moment he's doing something like saying, oh, there's a plot to kill such and such, or, you know, or he's, or he's pretending to be the German doctor and getting away. So he does a lot in this story where in previous ones he's kind of just been a background commentator half the time and not really driving mm -hmm. the story, you know. Yeah, yeah. He, I, I noticed that throughout these stories he has a considerable amount more 
personality or something than uh, than in the previous one. When you can kind of see, so, uh, I think, what the kind of stuff Troughton wanted to do, because the whole, as we'll see, uh, playing a woman, playing the German guy, I mean, that's him sort of having fun and also trying to be different than Hartnell, right? Because uh, those were yeah. not things that Hartnell did, yeah. Right. And, and it's, it's kinda... more acceptable than him playing the recorder, so... <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, he's uh, he's definitely uh, evolving even this early on into his uh, story arcs. He grabs the gun off the desk, and once he has that, he can go ahead and tie tie up Gray. Uh, then there's a knock at the door, so the doctor shoves Gray in a cabinet and he sits down at Gray's desk. Uh, the knock was Perkins, Gray's assistant, who is uh, kind of the the Baldrick. To uh, Blackadder, if uh, if you've seen you you've seen Blackadder, I've seen some. Not some enough to remember the character names yeah. and everything. But yeah. Well, the the Baldricks always serve the Blackadder family, and Perkins is kind of like this, except except he didn't. Uh, I don't think he he's inherited a hereditary position. Well, I think and this the, scene is, I guess, very Blackadder like in the sense that this is a very comedy scene. <laughs> it's pretty. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's a there's a whole long stretch where the doctor is, uh, you know, using his role as Doctor Vare to con Perkins into uh, thinking that there's something terribly wrong with his eyes. They, he does they, this they thing just where he's look like, horrible. Do you have headaches? He's like, no. And then he slams his head against the table, and he's like, do you have headaches? And he's like, no. And he slams it again, and the guy's like, well, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> And that's, that's, we haven't seen that in Doctor Who before, right? So I think that is the kind of thing that Patrick Troughton is sort of bringing to this. Oh, yeah. So the doctor cons him into sitting still and resting his eyes for an hour. And then we hear the gray in the cabinet. He's knocking to be let out. But uh, <laughs> when Perkins hears it, the doctor tells him that it's just a symptom of his eye fatigue. <laughs> then he says, just sit there for an hour and... <laughs> You know, uh, do your relaxation thing. Uh, and then uh, then he leaves. Back at the animal trap, Nell Finch is alone down in the bottom of the pit. His sergeant returns and finds him in the trap. Now, the sergeant uh, seems to have a thing against Finch, and he's not terribly afraid of him either because uh, he basically... Tells him he's going to leave him down there until he uh, he gets a reward uh, that he can use to uh, boost morale among the men. You know, buy him drinks and right. so and forth. Well, and I think again the implication here is embarrassment, right? Because he's like, "Well, why can't you pull me out?" And he's like, "Well, kind of. We're not quite sure how. I mean, you know, officers don't usually fall into traps, <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's kind of clear. Like, well, we wouldn't want to have to tell everybody what happened here, would we? <laughs> no." So finally, Finch relents, uh, but he doesn't have any money on him because the girls took all his... Yeah, games. and he doesn't realize but, that until he's already offered the money, right? So that's even more embarrassing. Right. Like, oh, I'll pay you. Oh, wait, you, you'll have to, you know, I'll owe it to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he'll pay him when they get to Inverness, which is where the jail is and where there's also an inn and uh, or where the sea captain met with uh, Gray, yeah, all this stuff. So Inverness is the big, uh, must be the local big city, just like Cleveland. So in the uh, in the inn, 
Trask, the sea captain, the piratey sea captain, he arrives and finds Perkins sitting there resting his eyes, ignoring whatever knocking Gray may still be doing on the cabinet. Trask finds Gray in the cabinet, and Gray explains that he was tricked. Uh, he tells Perkins to get the city watch, and he tells Trask to start loading the prisoners onto the ship. In the inn's kitchen, meanwhile, there's a maid in there, but somebody calls her from another room and she leaves, and the doctor's about to grab some clothes that he was hanging up, or she was hanging up, but, uh, but he hears redcoats coming, so he hides. In the jail, Trask begins selecting the prisoners to take. He can't, uh, he can't fit them all, he can't take everyone, but uh, fortunately he picks everyone who is crucial to the story, so <laughs> it works out. Back in the inn, Trask and the guard are moving the prisoners along, and they, they pass an old woman, and they put the prisoners in a room. Or maybe the jail is in the inn. I don't know. It's with this reconstruction, like I said. I'm just going to blame everything on the reconstruction. <laughs> anyway, they uh, they pass an old woman who is actually uh, Dr. Vare, a.k.a. Dr. Who. They put these prisoners in a room, but in the room, Trask sends the men down through a trap door. This leads down to a robot that the prisoners a are robot? told to no, get into. A robot? No, I don't into. think it was a robot. <laughs> Did I say robot? Yeah. I, I meant ro <laughs> rowboat. A rowboat. This is one letter difference. The, <laughs> the prisoners are told to get into. I don't believe you. I think I said robot. Oh, <laughs> damn it. You're playing mind games with me. That's what it is. Anyway, the trapdoor leads down to a rowboat that the prisoners are told to get in. Back, uh, back in the in the room, the doctor, uh, dressed as an old woman, uh, he's he's put on the maid's outfit. Plus, he's just sort of put on a little babushka scarf, whatever you know, and just just generally uh, hunched over and looking uh, pathetic. He's brought broth for Mr. Trask, but Trask is gone, so the doctor gives it to the guard. Uh, and that makes the guards leave, and the doctor checks out the trap door. Meanwhile, the rowboat has gotten to the ship, and uh, Trask begins the tour of the ship with an example to encourage the men. And he takes a bound man and uh, throws him overboard. He says, once aboard the Annabelle... That's the only way you'll get off her. Straight downward. <laughs> and that's the cliffhanger for this episode. Right. We'll see. Maybe next time we'll discover that uh, that he actually had a little, you know, shelf or scoop of things down there. Or <laughs> <laughs> so episode three. So on the Annabelle, it turns out we learned that this was a Scottish ship. Uh, one of the one of the prisoners was actually the captain of the ship, and uh, it was taken over by the English Navy, and that's how Trask got it. And now they're being taken to England. But Ben suggests that actually Trask uh, is probably planning to sell them as slaves. I don't, uh, I don't think we know what the situation there is yet. We know, obviously, Gray would do that. Uh, I think, uh, you know, but we don't know where Trask is in all this. Uh, so I don't know where Ben came up with the idea at this point. But. Yeah, I'm not sure <laughs> if that might then in a barn outside of Inverness, uh, Polly is with Kirsty, and Polly, again, you know, taking charge of everything, has the idea that they're going to pretend to be orange vendors. And Kirsty is offended as 
orange vendors are usually common girls. And, you know, she actually, uh-huh. as we kind of learned, even though she's been down and dirty with this stuff, she's from a kind of prominent family. So she doesn't want to, you know, be seen that way. But Polly points out that that's exactly the point because common girls hang around soldiers and they need to hang around soldiers to, <laughs> to make this thing work. And mm-hmm. I, so again, I talked to ChatGPT about this. So they did have this idea of orange sellers or vendors or orange girls, they called them. And that was usually lower class girls who would sell whatever they could, right? So it's just that idea of like someone on the street selling you oranges or apples or, you know, anything they can to, to make a dime. Um, mm. And this was associated with girls on the edge of society because they would, uh, they would talk to men and therefore, they must be engaged in immoral activities. And sometimes, it's kind of a weird little thing, in the theater, they would hire orange girls to take messages like from fans in the audience to the stars backstage. And this is another case where they would do this because these girls were then talking to these stars backstage. And again, that's something you, you know, a, a good girl wouldn't do. So you gotta you gotta hire an orange girl to do that. So <laughs> that was a little. Uh, interesting okay. little digression. These little things you learn. Interesting. Yeah, you know, I had heard that oranges were sold in like Shakespeare's Globe Theater, like they were the raisinettes mm. of mm. the you know Elizabethan period. I guess. Interesting. So Polly has a plan to to use Finch. We don't know what it is yet. So as as you know, my uh, <laughs> uh, Scooby Doo rule that probably means it's going to work because she she doesn't tell us <laughs> the plan. <laughs> Uh, and then in the Inverness Sea Eagle dining room. So, uh, you know, we have, I guess, uh, you know, I don't know if it's fancy or not. It's officers, I think, stay here. So Finch is relaxing with some wine, <laughs> as real men do. He's clearly just ready uh-huh. to have a relaxing evening. But Polly and Kirstie are brought in as these orange girls, and they wanted to talk to him. And, of course, and, and immediately this is like, Again, embarrassing. Everything with Finch is about getting embarrassed, right? Because why would orange girls come and talk to him? It probably means he's been hanging out with orange girls, and you know what that means. <laughs> so, uh, and at first, he's sending them away. Uh, I'm not sure he recognizes them, but then they remind him of their special relationship. And part of the deal, I don't think we mentioned, is that they took off of him a um, some kind of medallion that proved who he was. I think it's supposed to be... The red coat equivalent of dog tags. Yeah. So the only way they would have that is, you know, by having been able to get it off of him. Uh, and so that's what they have over him because they can prove it. Otherwise, it would just be their word against his and no one would yeah. would listen to them in that case. Um, so once they remind They also him, have the lock of hair. That's but, true. Uh, that's yeah, not a little they hard. They don't have yeah. DNA analysis exactly. back in these times. So, you know, they remind him what they have over him. So he, he allows them to stay there and... They want to know where, you know, their friends are and family. And Finch tells them he doesn't know about that. That's Gray's area. And meanwhile, the doctor is nearby and is disguised as a woman. He's trying to get their attention, but they don't recognize him, so they don't pay attention to him. Back on the ship, um, Gray is being very beneficiary, being very beneficial, beneficent. Gray is being beneficent. Yeah, yeah. Benef- Gray is being very beneficent. He's graciously offering the prisoners an alternative. They can either be hung or hanged. <laughs> they can choose, I guess, which one. Or uh, they can do a seven-year contract in the Indies, which is you know a great place to vacation. Uh, this seems like an obvious choice. Although someone there who's been to the Indies points out, you won't even. There's no way you'll live through your seven-year contract, right? <laughs> You're not. 
it, it was like uh, do you remember, was it, oh there was in the eighties, probably early eighties. There was a famous film. It might have been was it Demi Moore or someone like that gets uh, recruited into the army and they're showing her these like resort locations in exotic places and talking about how you know it's going to be all like one big vacation or whatever. Yeah. Demi Moore. That wasn't GI. No, that uh, no GI Jane was that. No, no, no it probably wasn't Demi Goldie Moore, Han but it was something private, like it might have been. Actually, Benjamin, I think it was Benjamin. Goldie Hawn. I'm sure it was a Goldie Hawn movie. No, she, that was that was Private Benjamin. Okay, though. yeah, I think or she got recruited private? into the military by by them making it look like it was going to be an exotic, you know, uh, vacation in foreign lands. Right? Okay, and, and uh, that's kind of what he's doing here. But someone who knows what they're talking about says you won't live seven years doing this, you know. And um, Ben pretends to be interested. He's going to sign a contract, but then he grabs all these contracts and tears them in half. And He's dragged away. And I guess this is a big deal because apparently they really legally, they need these contracts to be signed and they didn't exactly have photocopiers or anything. So now it's a total pain uh, to get more copies of these. Uh-huh. Meanwhile, back in the Sea Eagle, you know, the uh, restaurant or lounge, I guess, um, Gray's assistant Perkins is now entertaining Polly and Kirsty while they're waiting for Gray to show up. And Perkins wants to play whist. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and he's trying to get the doctor to go away because the doctor, you know, in his female disguise is bugging them. The doctor points out they need a fourth person for whist. <laughs> uh, and so he's, he's, you know, weaseling his way in. Then Gray shows up and he wants Perkins to put together more contracts for him. And the doctor, uh, you know, finally gets the women's attention and they leave. So not a lot happens in this, I guess. It's not even what you're talking about. It's just some people show up, some people leave, right? What's it they said? Yeah. You know, there's three or four stories. One is a man comes to town. Uh, <laughs> so in the barn, the doctor and the women, now that they're together, uh, talk to each other. And the doctor tells them that Ben and the others are on the ship. And he's going through this weird thing where he's just really tired and wants to go to sleep. But Polly's still in her very energetic take charge form. And she wants to go get everyone released from the ship. And the doctor's like, eh, whatever. <laughs> Seems to be kind of uninterested. Uh, but he does come up with a plan in which they could use Finch's money to buy weapons in a rowboat or a robot. <laughs> They'll then smuggle the weapons onto the ship. And she's like, okay, great. What do we do then? And he's like, I don't know. <laughs> so, uh on the Annabelle, Gray, again, is being very beneficent. He's telling Trask that the prisoners must be treated lightly until they've signed the contracts. And this is where, as I mentioned, he says, look, these Highlanders, you know, they're not the, the low class kind of people you're used to dealing with. They're going to stay. If, if you beat these people or mistreat them, they're going to stand together and refuse to sign these contracts. And he said, we just need to sign them. After that, I don't care what you do to them. You can do anything you want mm-hmm. to them. <laughs> just got to sign the contract. And then, uh, as a lesson to all, he wants Ben, since Ben tore up his contracts, to undergo ducking. So I looked this up. This was essentially the the original version of waterboarding, right? So what they would do is they'd tie mm. you up, and they would drop you in the water, and then pull you out, and then drop you in, and then pull you out. So they're not. It's not lethal, and in fact, it was considered to be a better punishment than some of the other things they could do to you. But uh, but it was pretty, especially in really cold water and stuff. It was a pretty annoying process to go through. Oh, sure. <laughs> So back in the barn, um, the women have procured a few weapons, and the doctor sort of embarrasses them because he comes in with a wheelbarrow full of weapons. So he somehow did a better job than they did. And this is totally out of the blue. Maybe maybe it was mentioned or shown somewhere earlier. It might be hard to know in the reconstruction. But the doctor realizes that Kirsty is wearing a ring, 
that he finds very interesting, and she refuses to talk about it. And Polly says she won't talk about it. So maybe in an earlier conversation, I don't remember any conversation about this. So I feel like the ring came out of nowhere. Mm. But he convinces she's like, oh, you know. Uh, finally, she- this was when mm-hmm. when they were in the pit. That was uh, she. She was curious to look at it, and I think uh, Kirsty explained that it was her father's ring, and he had entrusted it to her. And uh, she, because Polly wanted to hawk their no, jewelry, right, right. So it was money. there, but it was pretty. It went pretty fast because I don't have any memory of that. Right. Yeah, she admits then that the father saved Bonnie Prince Charles and and Charles gave him this ring as a reward. And the doctor's like, well, then this is the perfect time to use it, right? (laughs) Because it can save us. Mm -hmm. Uh, Back on the ship, Ben is now ducked, you know, dropped over the side of the ship into the water. He goes under, we see some bubbles, and it's the end of the episode. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Now, the last episode ended with someone getting dropped in and never seeing them again. So who knows? This could be the cliffhanger that really goes bad <laughs> yeah yeah this could uh this could be it for poor old ben especially now that they've got Except. jamie so <laughs> we are going to have jamie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. but it turns out that when they pull the rope up ben is no longer at the end of it <laughs> and he surfaces on the other side of the ship and this is this is something that was not clear not now maybe maybe the subtitles explained it uh in the reconstruction i mean uh at some some points i was dividing my attention between uh my cigarette making machine and the uh <laughs> the actual screen in front of me so uh, i may have just missed some subtitles scrolling by there but uh anyway it there's just all four of these episodes, there's been a lot that's remained unclear to me until I actually read about it in the scripts. But he surfaces on the other side of the ship, and he makes his way to the dock, gets out of the water, and finds a musket pointed at him. <laughs> but fortunately, it turns out that the soldier with the musket is the doctor in disguise. <laughs> this is getting to be like uh, the the bad Mission Impossible movies where everyone turns out to have one of those faces on, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, the doctor really, uh, well, this is at least his second disguise in this episode, or in this story arc. So. Well, no, third. Uh, it's the third because he's Dr. Rare, he's the woman, oh, the man. Oh, yeah, well, yeah, he yeah. didn't really put on any actual visual yeah, disguise. Yeah, that's true, that's but true. Yeah, you're, but it's certainly, uh, it's... It's another, uh, it's another deception. So yeah, I'll take that. The doctor loads a few things onto the boat. Uh, he says there are a few wee gifties for our friends aboard the Annabelle. In the captain's cabin of the Annabelle, Gray, Trask, and Perkins are here. Perkins hands over the signed contracts to Trask. He's, he's created all the new contracts and he's gotten them signed. Uh, Gray, or I guess he hands them over to Gray, not Trask. I just typed that wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gray instructs Trask to sail on the morning tide, fog or no fog. Back in the barn, finally the doctor, Ben, Polly, and Kirsty are all reunited. Uh, ben explains that he escaped using an old Houdini trick. He flexed his muscles to make them bigger when they were, when he was being tied up. Later, he relaxed his muscles and was able to wriggle out of the rope. So you are 
you have studied some magic <laughs> in the past, but uh, is it plausible? Well, I'm not really aware of that being a Houdini trick, uh, or it's not that plausible if people are being careful. But the funny thing to me is, so I used to be, as a kid, obsessed about reading the Hardy Boys and the Nancy Drew books. And mm. the Hardy Boys did yeah, this. Yeah, I read quite a few, too. Yeah, this was a Hardy Boys bit, right? Every time they got tied up, they'd go through, like, how, and then later they'd get out and they say, yeah, you know, I... I tensed up when they were tying me up and then I released. So I had this plan uh, as a eight year old kid or whatever. And I was reading them and like, well, if I ever get tied up, I'm going to do that. <laughs> so uh, so uh, uh, this is, uh, has a lot of nostalgia for me, this plan. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there you go. <laughs> so they, here's the plan and they tell us the plan this time. So that means it's not going to work <laughs> uh, according to the Scooby-Doo rule, I guess. Ben is going to take the doctor out in a rowboat. He's going to drop off the doctor on the ship. Then he's going to take the rowboat and head around to the rear porthole and pass weapons through the porthole to the rebels. Can't see what would go wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, the girls protest they have no role in all of this, so the doctor lets them come along, too. In the captain's cabin aboard the ship, Gray instructs Perkins that when he gets to Barbados, he's to collect 3,500 guineas, which, uh, I mean, uh, the 20 guineas that girls got from Finch was a lot of money to <laughs> Kirsty. so 3,500 is a huge amount. And uh, Perkins is then to meet Gray back in London around the end of October uh, and this with the 3,500 guineas. Yeah, th this reminds me of one of those, you know, phrases that you don't necessarily think about what it means uh, historically. So, you know that phrase, uh, my when my ship comes in or something like that. Oh, uh, you know, yeah. Well, I mean, historically that was very meaningful. It's in a lot of Shakespeare stories and stuff because the big, like, money investment thing you would do at the time that was very risky is you would invest in a ship that was taking a supply of, you know, hopefully not slaves, but of something valuable, you know, to some other country, some other continent. And then coming back, and if the ship got there and came back, you would make a lot of money. But there was a, right. a non-trivial chance that it would sink yeah. on the way. So my ship come, you know, when my ship comes in is, you know, <laughs> that's what that's all about. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yep. Makes sense. So Trask barges into the captain, or yeah, captain's cabin, uh, and he is the doctor as a captive. Uh, doctor has been dropped off on the ship by Ben in the rowboat. Gray is angry with the doctor because he's fallen prey to his wiles before. <laughs> but the doctor has something else to con him with this time, and he shows him Kirsty's ring. Uh, he explains that one of the men who was taken prisoner after the battle is actually Prince Charles, the rebel leader, in disguise. And the doctor will reveal who he is for 10,000 guineas, <laughs> uh, which uh, is about three times what Gray expects to make on this whole slave trip. Right. Down in the hold, the rowboat has made it to the right porthole, and Kirsty and her father have a brief touching reunion uh, talking through the porthole. And then Ben and the girls begin handing guns through. Back in the captain's cabin, 
The doctor says the prince is not just one of the prisoners who was captured, but one of the ones who was selected to come on this ship to Barbados. He says it was the Highlander Piper who was with him earlier, uh, but Gray didn't take much notice of him, so the doctor will have to come along with Gray and Perkins to identify him. Down in the hold, Trask, Gray, Perkins, the doctor, and two guards all go down there, and the Highlanders are sleeping, and they're, Trask and Gray and the rest, they're sneaking around being quiet, and the doctor's trying to look at different guys while they're sleeping to see if they're the, the right guy, and he's not having any luck, but he finally identifies Jamie, uh, and when he fingers him, that's the signal for the Highlanders to spring into action with their brand new weapons. <laughs> so up on the deck, Ben and Trask are about to sword fight, uh, but Ben trips and falls. So it looks like Trask's got his number, but fortunately, Jamie swings in on a rope and he saves the day. <laughs> so that's some real, real swashbuckling there. And then he forces Trask overboard. And Willie takes command of the ship, who I presume is the the guy who originally owned the ship and uh, had it taken from him by Trask. And he's going to take all these prisoners to France, which they'll be living in France, but they'll uh, at least not be hunted down by the king's mm -hmm. men anymore. The doctor is now ready to return to the TARDIS. The ship is under control He's going to take Gray off the ship as a hostage so they can make their way through town uh, without any trouble from the Redcoats. Perkins, it turns out, speaks French, and he'd rather not be taken along as a second hostage. And he'll be permitted to travel to France as Colin's new assistant. The doctor says he'll stay loyal enough till the wind shifts again, mm -hmm. <laughs> which, which is... Probably accurate, given uh, what we've seen of Perkins so far. And finally, before leaving, Perkins insults Gray by snapping his fingers at him. He says, I've been wanting to do that for a long time. <laughs> Back at the dock, Polly and Ben see a signal lamp that means the ship is departing. It turns out that Jamie stowed away on the rowboat with them, and he's going to help guide the companions through the glen. Ben and Jamie take Gray into the boathouse, and there are two soldiers around, but Ben and Jamie and the doctor knock, knock the guards out. But Gray escapes during that distraction. So now uh, the companions need another hostage to get out of town. Back at the inn, Finch is enjoying a quiet pipe outside, and suddenly Ben holds a gun on him. But a colonel shows up and interrupts him as they're leaving. So the doctor pulls out his German act again. <laughs> he shows the colonel the prince's ring and says they're going to apprehend him. The colonel offers to send more men to assist them, but the doctor says that'll warn off the prince. You know, too many men will make too, many, too much noise. Finch wants to tell the colonel the truth, but Polly has the dog tag that she took from him earlier, and mm -hmm. she uh, shows it to remind him that she's uh, got some blackmail material on him. So next, we're in a house where uh, the companions have had a chance to rest up a little bit uh, until Gray shows up with some redcoats. He's tracked them down. Polly has brought Finch up to date on Gray's scheme, though. Uh, and Finch uh, starts 
given Gray what for. Gray argues that it's all perfectly legal. He has mm. the signed contracts, except he doesn't because the doctor is pickpocketed them. <laughs> It must be pretty small contracts or something. I don't know. Like, oh, yeah. Just imagine this is this whole sheaf of dozens of contracts. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, the doctor's just that good, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the uh, redcoats take Gray away. Maybe the doctor even stole them while they were still on the ship. I don't know. Anyway, the redcoats take Gray away. Uh, Jamie is still a wanted man, and the ship to France is left, so he comes along in the TARDIS. And we hear the sound of someone pull-starting a lawnmower, which means they're <laughs> all off on another adventure. Yeah. And I think you uh, wisely left out a whole long sequence where they're trying to find their way back or something, and Jamie is helping them, and you know, all that stuff. I mean, that's probably the shortest episode we've ever done, just because it's mostly action and all the plot has happened in... Uh, uh, all the other stuff, but um, yeah. And so as I mentioned, Jamie was not supposed to be a companion. He was asked at the last moment if he wanted to stay on, and they reshot the last scene. And now the clock is ticking for Ben. <laughs> so uh, yeah. I don't know if they had a problem with him. I haven't seen you know what the deal there was, but uh, I do know, and it might have helped here that uh, Fraser Hines and Patrick Troughton got along really well. So it wouldn't surprise huh. me at all if like. You know, Troughton was like, hey, I like that guy. Why don't we keep him on or something? Oh, yeah. Hmm. Hmm. So was there any tension between him and Ben's actors? You know, I should know this because I've watched a bunch of things about all this, but it, but I didn't f- recently for this. So um, I'm going to guess. I mean, I, I've told you this story before. I don't know if I said it on the podcast, but I once as a, you know, I ran a department and rented and everything. So um I once was in a situation where I was going to have to fire somebody who uh, he was a good guy and everything, but it was just the wrong job for him, right? And he, and he just he wasn't performing, and and um, mm-hmm. it was one of those cases where it sounds like a a weaselly manager out, but it was true. Like it would be better to fire him and and have him find a job he'd be good at than to you know continue clinging on to this job that he was never going to be good at. Anyway, yeah. so I thought I was very clever. I brought another person onto the team um, for some other reason, right? And I and I thought nobody's going to see what I'm doing here, <laughs> where I'm sort of uh, setting uh, up for this other person to take on his job. Two minutes after our team meeting, he's in my office saying, "Am I fired?" <laughs> so, uh, so I so that is all a long way of saying my guess is that uh, that the actor playing Ben, you know, knew what was up and and I'm sure was, writing on the yeah, wall. I'm sure it wasn't a happy experience for. The next couple stories. <laughs> um, yeah. We have, I mean, not the next one, because I don't know, I've never seen it, but the one after that, which is a story I'm fond of, um, <laughs> because they already had the script written, you'll see, they just have Jamie be basically knocked out or sick through the whole story, right? Because they didn't have anything <laughs> for him to say. So. <laughs> but uh, the next, well, let's, oh, we, sh- we need to have our discussion. So first of all, I mean, yeah, in terms of the reconstruction, uh, we both referenced it, right? This just... I always appreciate when someone has gone through the incredible trouble to do one, and especially back when it was in the VHS days and you didn't have all the tools that we do now to put it together. But uh, <laughs> this is hard going. I wouldn't recommend it. Uh, the, yeah, you know. it's, 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 it's neither the picture nor the audio is especially clear. Yeah, it's just terribly tough to follow because there, there's so much physical stuff that happens 
without narration. Not not just fighting type action, but just things like picking something up off a table, you know, stuff like that. But as I said, you know, the audiobook is perfectly good. So if you're curious, I recommend listening to that. So what do you think of the stories? They would say it's the last pure historical. Uh, we don't have Daleks. We don't have a monk. If we could see it live, and, and I'm sure it's just hard to know. I mean, it could look pretty interesting, and they have some fights, and you have the red coats, and you, have, you know, you have a lot of potentially visually interesting stuff. But just in terms of the story, do you think that that works? Uh, no, I mean, I like I like the historical ones in general. I like the idea of doing historical ones, and I'm kind of sad that this will be uh, the end of them for a good long while. But uh, this one just didn't really, I don't know, the, the pacing seemed really slow to me. It seemed, <laughs> and they're, you know, like the last one we watched with the power of the Daleks, uh, that had a lot of fun stuff, a lot of tension between all the people living in the colony, a lot of uh, skulking around in subterfuge and intrigue, and uh, the yeah, then you had the crazy, Daleks. Yeah. <laughs> The Daleks come back from uh, their their state of uh, not being active, and they're being very clever as usual. Mm-hmm. You know, they uh, uh, you got to give it to them. I, in the episodes we've seen with Daleks in it, uh, they're uh, they are pretty smart cookies. They mm-hmm. may have a, uh, an inflated opinion of their own abilities, but uh, but they uh, they do have. Uh, it's they're hard to con mm-hmm. somebody uh, mm-hmm. you got to be really on the ball if you got to want to put one over on the Daleks whereas in this there wasn't a lot of that different clever stuff going on. I mean it was fun uh, you know the doctor is dressed up as a maid mm-hmm. the doctor is doing his German accent and so on so uh, there, there's some fun stuff in here but overall felt like a pretty slow paced story to me and I uh it wasn't overall crazy about it. <laughs> See, I would um, contrast this to The Smugglers, which was also a historical story, which was also a reconstruction. And I had, you know, I think more challenges with it than than you did. And the difference to me is that uh, in The Smugglers, I just, there wasn't that much going on. And here you do have all these individual elements, you know, the Finch storyline with him being embarrassed all the time and stuff is kind of funny. Yeah. You know, you have the doctor playing all these different roles, which of course would be more impactful if we could we could see them. You have some pretty funny dialogue. You know, I like Gray as the war profiteer guy. So I think there are all these interesting elements. I would say it's a case where the, you know, the parts are not more or the whole is not more than the parts, right? It's like there's interesting parts, but now sometimes and we'll see this with when we get to some stories that were recovered, you know, about a decade ago. And before they were recovered and when people were just watching the reconstructions and everything, they had one opinion about them. And then when you actually saw the the real story, people's opinions really changed. So it's mm. very hard in something like this to know what we would think if we could see it, you know. Right. Uh, one thing that's a little weird for me for them deciding to bring Jamie on is that and, – and again, it, it just may have been made more sense if you saw it visually. In terms of listening to this thing, he's not very – much of the story he's not in the story very much it's or he's not having a big no. impact on it or anything yeah he, he's really uh a minor character mostly uh until we find out uh the 
he's going to be, become a new companion <laughs> right. and so forth. Yeah. yeah, Polly at least gets something to do because, you know, Doctor Who in the old days really went back and forth on whether they empowered women or or didn't, right? And, and at different times, we've seen very powerful women and at other times, they're treated pretty badly and, you know, she's clearly getting to step up here and I mean, she was sort of in control of her whole storyline, right? <laughs> so, oh, yeah. She's uh, she's fun in this one. This uh, this really sort of stands out as something where Polly uh, is genuinely interesting. Uh, I mean, she has her moments in the other ones, but this one, she's uh, she's just kind of gangbusters in this yeah, one. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of Barbara, right, at, at her best, because Barbara was mm-hmm. always sort of a, a pretty active character. Um so, so at this point, with what you're seeing or not seeing or whatever, what, what's your uh, new doctor rating? Is it going up, down, the same? <laughs> I'd say it's gone up. Uh, I, I am getting more of a sense of what his personality is going to be, I think, or at least what it is at this point. So I, I definitely find him more interesting in this story. Uh yeah, yeah, he's he's still no Hartnell, but uh, <laughs> but but I like him. Uh, yeah, I like I'm 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 warming up to him. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then you know, our is it worth watching question? I mean, if you take the words "worth watching" literally, I think we both made it very clear: don't watch this. You know, it's not. Well, yeah, the reconstruction mm-hmm. is is really an exercise in frustration for me. Yeah. Uh, no, if the if the subtitles had been more available, you know, they weren't cut off or reversed or, you know, so forth. I mean, and then, of course, like I admitted earlier, uh, sometimes I was glancing back and forth between my <laughs> desk and the screen. So it's hard to watch the reconstruction. The scripts, like I mentioned, were on Chrissy's transcript site. You could read through those or give it the treatment that you did when... You know, go plunk down the dough for the audio book right. of it. But uh, it, it, in the reconstruction form, it's, yeah, it, it, it's just, uh, it's difficult. You know, like I said, I watched the last two episodes at 1.5 times speed. <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, that's where we stand on this one. You know, it's just one of those where listen to the podcast, don't worry about the rest. <laughs> Next up is the half-missing story that I also have never seen, The Underwater Menace. Hmm. Now, I got to say, you know, one question I'll have going into this since I have never seen it is, you know, is a menace kind of worthy of the doctor? I mean, a menace sounds like, you know, you have some rats in the basement or, you know, I don't know. You know, um, well, the uh, the Phantom Menace. Yeah, that's true. Uh, was a, well, was a blockbuster. <laughs> well, you don't want to think of that, so... But uh, yeah, we'll we'll see. Maybe maybe um, maybe menace will be good enough. You know, there is menace to society. So, mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, a menace is just anything threatening. Yeah. So uh, you know, it could be a an especially ugly spider on your ceiling, or it could be uh, you know a horde of invading Englishmen. <laughs> Who knows? We shall find out next week. <laughs> Now, it's funny here because they have this um, 
tradition of saying, you know, I'm of the clan McCrimmon or I'm of the clan whatever. And it just, I've been listening to dozens and dozens of these court cases with sovereign citizens. Have you, have you heard of sovereign citizens? No. Oh, it's an amazing rabbit hole if you ever want to go down it. So bizarrely, there's, there's actually just tens of thousands of people. Uh, and this is not just in the U S but also at least in Canada, I don't know about Britain, um, that have come up with this fantasy legal system that they're part of, which means that in the U.S. they are they get all the um, rights of a U.S. citizen, but none of the obligations. Which is ah. that's a good deal if you can get it right. <laughs> so, yeah. so they can't be arrested. They can't, you know, et cetera. And um, one of the things that they're always getting arrested for is they have the for some reason they have this real problem with having a driver's license or registering their car. Hmm. And so they're always driving around, you know, with outdated registrations and no driver's license. And then when they're stopped, what they say is, I'm not driving, I'm traveling. <laughs> I'm traveling huh. uh, according to Black's Law Dictionary. So they have these things they go after. So Black's Law Dictionary is like in the 17 or 1800s, a guy put together this dictionary of legal terms, right? And they use that to say that traveling and driving are two different things and you don't have to have a license to travel uh, only if you're doing commercial stuff. You know, it's just a, a, like if you're driving a, a big truck for somebody, right? Um, but if mm. you're just – so the thing is Black's Law Dictionary is just a dictionary. And in the same way that sometimes the court will go to Merriam-Webster to kind of clarify the meaning of a word, but that mm. doesn't mean that Merriam-Webster – is binding on the court, right? It doesn't right, mean right. that if Merriam Webster says this, the court must do it, right? This is just some dictionary that was written a couple hundred years ago about law terms, and they've decided that it's binding uh, on the court system and that, it, you know, they, they don't have to have a license and all this. So what always ends up happening is uh, their window gets smashed, so they get dragged out of the car, you know, they get arrested. Uh. They turn, you know, usually a, either just getting their car towed or a $50 citation into sometimes, you know, resisting arrest, going to jail, you know, <laughs> all this stuff. And right. uh, there's, anyway, so there's all these things um, they do. But one of them is they, they believe that language is very important. And they believe that if you say your name, you are contracting with the court and giving them jurisdiction over you. So two things happen. Uh, the you know they'll they'll get in court because they got their window smashed and they got dragged out of their car and <laughs> all this stuff, and they're in front of the judge and the judge says, "Is your name such and such?" And they say, "I'm the representative of you know," and they they refuse you know I'm I'm the beneficiary of the corporate entity that is that person, but I'm not that person. <laughs> they have this whole thing. <laughs> so one of the things that they believe, and that's on my very long digression to come around to this, uh, that's similar to how they refer to themselves here, is. You don't want to say your first name and your last name because that will be binding. So you'll say, like, I am James of the family Smith. <laughs> ah. And that protects you. They can't say you're James Smith. You are James of the family Smith, right? Uh, the other thing is mm. none of these theories they have ever work, and they just end up going to jail and paying money and ah. all this. But, but you know, yeah. they get to play this fun little game along the way. Uh, well, uh, I admire their spirit. Uh, <laughs> I... Uh, I, I, yeah, I, I can see how that might not work out well for him. It's uh, 
It's the golden rule, you know, who has the gold makes the rules. <laughs> yeah, well, that's just, if they've actually been judging, one of the things they always say is, what's your jurisdiction over me? Or do you have subject matter jurisdiction? You need to prove your jurisdiction over me. <laughs> so, some judges are mm -hmm. like, well, you're in handcuffs and in jail, and I'm sitting here. So I guess we know who has the jurisdiction. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so the other thing I want to mention here, which is more relevant, and maybe I'll put on all that at the end of this is that Jamie McCurman is a piper. 